Let's open our copies of God's Word at Psalm 6, please. Psalm 6. And read together these verses. Psalm 6, to the chief musician on Nuganoth, upon Shemaneth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Amen. Amen. So we are uh, completing our examination of uh, Psalm 6 that we started and we'd got from verses, well, including the superscription between verses 1 to 7, examining uh, this psalm. And so now we really come up to verse 8. But as a bit of a reminder uh, for those who weren't here, or even those who were, of what we've examined uh, thus far um, from the the body of the psalm itself. We see, firstly, that there was David's prayer for mercy. And that's how he begins with, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. And we made uh, a couple of comments upon this, that this is a chastening love. This is, not, this is not a punishing wrath. This is the chastening love of the Lord towards his own. And then we considered the severity of that chastisement, that this was no light matter that David was guilty of, and we thought, well, what, what great sins was, was David guilty of? Well, there's a number of them. The greatest, of course, we consider then is his sins against Uriah the Hittite uh, and all that was involved in that. Uh, I suggested it might not be that because Psalm 51 is, is, a, is a psalm that is, from, in its own witness, closely linked to that episode and Nathan the prophet being used of God to bring David, a backslidden David, uh, back uh, to, uh, to, through repentance and faith, back to fellowship with the Lord. But there are other issues, there are other places in how he treated Edom when he went to the Mount Seir and he, uh, he had the people uh, uh, terribly, uh, literally sawn asunder and smashed and all sorts of terrible things done to them, um, even once they had um, surrendered. Or, or being conquered is probably better said. They were conquered by David's army, and then he allowed the army to go and abuse the survivors in a terrible way. I think that's one of the, the most important 
reasons why God calls David a man of blood, and therefore it would be Solomon, his son, the, the, the man of peace, that's where the word name Solomon means, to build his temple. Um, as he says in 1 Samuel 25, and in their respective places in, in uh, Chronicles. Um, so there are other places where David has not been the greatest hero of the faith by any means, but we see as a sinner saved by grace. So, yeah, so the, we see then, uh, we, all we saw already in those verses, um, David's prayer for mercy, and then David's petition for deliverance. So he's asking the Lord, uh, firstly, to have mercy on him as he's suffering in many ways, and we're not looking at the details now. Uh, that's all uh, online in, the, in last week's uh, Bible study. But then he, he, he has a petition for deliverance, uh, that he would be delivered. Uh, we see that there beginning in verse 4. Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. And, and we see that his petition for God to deliver him from, uh, from including his enemies was on the basis of truth because he pleads for mercy not based upon anything that David has done. We're just recapping at the moment. So not for anything that David has done, but he's basing that plea, well, on two things. Firstly, upon God's merciful character. Not for anything in David, but save me for thy mercy's sake. Because, God, thou art merciful, thou art compassionate, thou art good and kind. Thou hast said so in thy word, and I believe thy word. And therefore, God, save me for thy mercy's sake. But also, he prays for deliverance on the basis of the grief. Because then he shares with the Lord uh, the, the, the sufferings that he has based upon the attack of his enemies and the Lord's hand heavy upon him. And we, we connected those two anyway. Uh, the Lord's hand heavy upon him uh, was experienced by him through an attack uh, of his enemies. And so on the basis of his grief, which we see in, in verse 6, especially 6 and 7, and he talks of his sleeplessness and he talks of his weeping and his groaning and his moaning uh, because... Grief has, has taken hold of his soul and is affecting his, his body also. So, the, so David's prayer for mercy uh, gives us in the first four verses, then David's petition for deliverance, uh, verses especially 6 and 7. And that brings us to this evening as we continue uh, working off from, in some ways, from halfway through verse 7, it waxeth old, because of all mine enemies... And that's where he diverts our attention now to, to this, this earthly matter that he looks for a heavenly solution, is those enemies. And then he says in verse 8, and we come then to our third point, David's plea for peace. David's plea for peace. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. And depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. And so from having prayed to God, um, called upon God for mercy, called upon him for deliverance, he now directs his attention in this psalm directly to his foes. And these foes are not just, it's not just a misunderstanding in the church. These are, these are not godly people with whom there is miscommunication and that, that sort of thing, unfortunately, does happen. But what he's saying is that these people uh, whom he is dealing with, who are his foes, are not godly people. They're not his brethren. 
They may be part of Israel, but they're not his brethren, and he calls them workers of iniquity. Very clearly what they are. And then he goes on to inform them that, that God is his great protector, that God protects him, and that therefore they should, as it were, flee from him now while they have the chance before God hears his prayer and answers his prayer. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. There is, there is a voice of mercy here, of giving that warning uh, to, to him that has sinned grievously against him. And so that's the confidence that, that David has in God's mercies that we see as he's called upon God for mercy, and he has the confidence. Uh, and I just examine the, what, what we see here. Firstly, he has that confidence because he knows that God is touched with the feeling of his infirmities. And that was one of the basis of his, of his petitions to God uh, based upon his grief and his suffering. And so he knows that the... He says, For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. So my, my poor, frail human uh, experience of, of grief and sorrow is not despised by God. Our God does not despise weakness. Humans do. But God doesn't. He doesn't mock at our weeping. He doesn't rejoice at our failings. And when I say us, I'm talking about his people, as especially his children, because he is a loving, a kind, and a merciful God. He has affection towards his own children. It is in his nature to be affectionate, to be patient towards his own children. Yes, we know when we consider, if we have any knowledge of the, of the Scriptures, we know have any knowledge of the Psalms, that we know that there are places where God does rejoice at suffering, but the suffering of his enemies, the suffering of the enemies of his people. And he does mock at the arrogance of the unrepentant sinner but not towards his own people, certainly not towards his own children. But also this, it, it's not only that God knows it and understands it and observes it, but this brings us back to the theme of the last few sermons, but it is in and through and because of the incarnation that the Son of God himself has personally experienced these things in our flesh that we know and understand that the incarnate Son of God knows weakness, human weakness, human frailty in a personal way. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 that concludes with this and says uh, for a whole argument in chapter 4, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, to make the sentence a positive sentence, for we do have an high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And then I'll change the but into and, and was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And so God knows, God understands, uh, the Son of God knows the Holy Spirit who filled Jesus Christ knows and understands in a very complete and full way and always knew and understood. 
Jesus Christ, or I should say the Godhead, did not have to wait for 4,000 years, because of course God is an eternal being, uh, for Jesus to experience that, then to be as the Son, as the one person of the, of the Godhead, to know more and experience more. It is, he always knew it. He always knew what would be done and what would be felt and what would be experienced as the God-man, because he is eternal God. He's not dependent upon that, but it's an encouragement to us that God became man and he suffered. He was tempted. He, was, he had tests in life, but he also was tempted uh, with all sorts of things, including sin, and yet it did not affect him in that way. But the trials that he had, the human infirmities and frailties, makes him such an important high priest to us. A human high priest, as Paul was writing to the Hebrews, you know, would not have that same feeling. They're too bound up with their own problems of life and their own cold heart towards their fellow Israelite. But this high priest, and that's something of that is what David understands in this psalm. Yeah, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. And when we look at that, we can also wonder, uh, we can understand, therefore, that not only does he know, he's convinced that God is touched with the feeling of his infirmities, but it, that God has been listening all the time. That God has been listening all the time, and God hath heard my supplication. Now, can that be referring to previous prayers? Yes. God hath in the past always heard my prayers, and he's answered them. Is he resting upon that? I think we can see that, certainly. But even now, the petitions that he's just made, even in this psalm, just in that very short and, and very strict context, he knows that God has heard his petition. He knows that the omniscient God knows the personal thoughts, the personal feelings, the personal desires, and the prayers of his people intimately. Psalm 139, the first part of that psalm, verses 1 to 4, reveal this, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. And the Lord just knows it all. He knows it of all the people. And yet he knows it in an intimate and in an affectionate and a fatherly way as regarding his own. And David understands that, that the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. And in indeed in Psalm 65, of which David is also the, the psalmist, he gives the Lord a specific epithet. What is an epithet? Is a descriptive title. You know, we have things like Richard the Lionheart, the King. Uh, that Lionheart is a is an epithet. It, it's a descriptive uh, title given to him, um, Alexander the Great, for example. And here we have in Psalm 65 and verse 2 that David describes God. He says, "O thou that hearest prayer." Unto thee shall all flesh come. That, that's the title that he gives him in Psalm 65. O thou that hearest prayer. And, and, and David believes that. That God hears prayer. Do you believe that? Because David does. And David, in spite of his many failings and, and some terrible sins, 
such sins that many of us these days would, would scratch our heads and think, that man cannot be saved. So terrible were some of his sins. And yet God still declares that he was a man after his own heart. And to be a person after God's own heart is also to have that confidence that God hears prayer. So he sees that God is touched with the feeling of his infirmities, that God has been listening all the time, and thirdly, that God will answer David's petitions, that he will, he still has that open promise. He's, he, he's as it were, riding that wave constantly of knowing, that the, 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 not that I know anything about surfing, by the way, but that the God is always hearing his prayers, his petitions, his little petitions that he sends up from horseback or as he's just going to bed and before he closes his eyes. And, and whatever these things are in his, in, in his seasons of prayer, he is convinced and knows that God will answer my prayers. He says that the Lord will receive my prayer. I notice, maybe there's a threefold uh, truth then, as we've just given it three points before we get into that particular point. He says, for the Lord hath, um, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for these reasons. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping, the Lord hath heard my supplication, the Lord will receive my prayer. So, he knows that the Lord is compassionate towards him. He knows that the Lord has heard his petitions. And he is convinced and has this great confidence that not only has he heard it, but he will accept it. That's what that word receive means. That the petition, the prayer, the prayer with its many petitions maybe, has been received, has been accepted. Which points to that glorious truth that David's looking for, that his, his calls for the chastisement to cease and for God to deliver his soul from his enemies will be completely answered in God's timing and in God's way which is a better way than we can come up with in our own petition, in our own prayer as we call upon God and we think, well, this would be a great way of getting out of this. And our desire is, of course, is that the moments of trial will be out of the way with quickly, that, the, that, that our foes will be removed quickly. We want them out of the way. We want to just keep walking on a, on a nice and even path with the sun shining and uh, the shade of the trees and, and just be able to just carry on in a leisurely place uh, and walk our walk uh, on earth. But the Lord does not move the enemies out of the way. He, ca he, he brings us through them. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He wants us to walk through them. But then we realize that thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They're there to protect me, they're there to guide me, they're there to uh, chastise me where necessary. He brings us through them because it's the only way that a sinful character can be, can be sanctified. That can move forward. So when, there's an example then linked in with David, is that when David heard the rebuke of Nathan and it struck him to the quick and he was, he grieved over his sin. He saw his sin, he grieved over his sin, he repented of his sin and yet it still pleased the Lord to take away the baby. And he had to go through that to receive the baby into, into glory, by the way, that we understand from the words of David. But the Lord brought him through all of that. 
for the correction and the chastisement of David's soul and of the improvement of his character. There's one thing that the New Testament speaks of is constantly is the sanctification of the Christian's character. It's very clear that there is much, there's wickedness in the flesh. The, the, you know, the, 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 the deeds of the flesh are, are a terrible list, um, a litany of wickedness and failings. And yet the fruit of the Spirit is such a, a, a wonderful list again uh, of, of glorious truths of what the Lord can do in a soul that humbles himself before the Word of God and applies it in their life. Which is why it's so important to come to, to, the, to the Lord's house every time that the Bible is open, that we can be fed and challenged and changed by the Word of God. It won't happen any other way. God has not promised that anyone would be the exception. But it must happen in that way. Because that's the way that God gets the glory. His Word. And His Spirit taking that Word and giving the glory to God at every moment. And so David's call then, he's, as we looked at those three aspects of it, his call for relief from that rebuke, from deliverance from his enemies, is in this case exactly according to God's will because he is so convinced that it will be answered. He knows it's according to God's will. And therefore it's an exercise of faith to trust in God that he will answer it. As, as the Lord says in many, many places, in many ways, but he is one from Psalm 50 and verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. And so that gives hope. That gives much hope to us as well as when we consider this. Consider the, 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 the hope that David had, the promise that David had. And where is Psalm 6 written? In, in his life, and I think yet it is, it is not in the early part of his life, because we've looked at already that he writes it to the chief musician. Well, there, were no, there was no chief musician. This was the tabernacle worship. And yet later on in his kingship, um, which, may, which, which does mean this is after the episode with Bathsheba, when he gets, he and Nathan and Gad the seer all receive revelation from God for the future temple, how it is to be built, literally how it's to be laid out, how it is to be built, uh, which of the Levitical priests were to be musicians, which were to be uh, doorkeepers, which were to be assistants of this uh, to, 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 the, to the actual um, uh, sacrificial priests. And um, Having received all that was after this time, and yet we see here He's not, he's not hanging on to the guilt. Well, now, now I've really sinned against God. I've, I've really gone too far this time. He, 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 he trusts in God's grace. He trusts in the grace of God towards him. And so he has this hope and he has boldness, which uh, David, that is. And now we see that boldness increasing when we get to verse 10. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction uh, to, uh, to this psalm last week, I mentioned that there's a couple of doctrines in there which are not easy for the modern evangelical uh, mind, evangelical Christian. The first of all is that God uh, can rebuke and chastise his child to such a degree that he calls out in pain for mercy. That doesn't suit the Santa Claus idea that people have of God. 
But the second doctrine that is greatly difficult is, an Im is the imprecation. Is, as it were, calling down fire from heaven upon uh, your enemies. That seems so contrary to a superficial understanding of the New Testament. And then we'll have people quickly will say, well, the Old Testament, the Old Testament God, the New Testament God, the Old Testament Church, the New Testament Church, and, 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 and then miss out on the, on the continuum uh, that there is, is that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He is judge. He's not this effeminate Roman Catholic, uh, long flowing hair, um, you know, uh, wearing a robe and being, you know, uh, meek and mild in that, in, in that idolatrous way that he is uh, painted. But he is, the, he is a merciful uh, shepherd, he's a loving shepherd, but he is also, he is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire, and he will be in his judgment. So fourthly then, so we've seen David's prayer for mercy, David's petition for deliverance, David's plea for peace, and finally David's imprecation, an imprecation. Now there are parts of certain psalms especially that introduce us to this idea of imprecation. It's not a common word, I will explain it uh, and open it up. Essentially it's this, it's a prayer or it is a desire that's expressed to God, a prayer, a petition, that desires that God would punish and even curse certain other people. That's what an imprecation is. And there are a number of them in the Scriptures. Paul, the Apostle, calls in a couple of places imprecations upon himself. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But as, as I said, this seems to be, for many Christians, absolutely contrary to the New Testament teaching and why many of them dislike or even despise the Psalms. Uh, but it is God's truth, and it should become our truth. And if we don't understand it, um, well, let's dive in and, and try to understand it as we come to the close of this psalm this evening. It's not contrary to New Testament doctrine. It is New Testament doctrine. So a famous passage that we have in, uh, in, from the Sermon on the Mount, from the Lord Jesus, he says this, Matthew 5 and 44, he says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's the one we recognize and know. But of course there's another 26.95 books uh, to add to that. We're not looking at all of those tonight. So essentially the believer is to love unconditionally those that are their enemy and to do the exact opposite that they're doing. When they're cursing you, you bless them. When they are being mean to you, you do good things to them. And you pray for them even when their actions are terrible towards you. Because that's how God has treated you. That's how God has been to your soul. Up until the moment of conversion, of course, and especially uh, more so afterwards. But we are to have a, 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 a holy and a... Maybe not divine, but certainly a holy way of dealing 
uh, with our enemies. That's our responsibility. This is how we are to react. And then the Apostle Paul adds to that, and he explains what will happen to the Christian's enemy who is not won over, is not reformed, is not repentant because of your kindnesses. He says that in Romans 12 and verse 20. He says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. It's the same doctrine. He just opens up a truth here to add to it. If they're not won over, if they're not convinced, if they do not see your love and are broken by it, or convinced by it, or confused by it, and it makes them start thinking spiritually for the first time. You, you will heap coals of fire on their head. God's judgment will be even greater upon your enemy who still remains being your enemy. Even though you've, been, you've shown them that love and that kindness they haven't deserved, you have not repaid uh, uh, wickedness with wickedness. On the contrary, contrary you have been Christ-like. And so loving them, blessing them, doing good to them, praying for them, none of which excludes praying to God against them and their actions. That's what David prays in verse 10. He knows his responsibility as a, as a, as a believer under God, what his reactions should be and what he should do. We understand that from the teaching of, of, of Christ and of his apostle Paul, we understand that we are to be good and kind and to bless. That's our responsibility. And yet we have a, a great high priest, we have an advocate, we have a Father in heaven to whom we may cast all our cares and leave the vengeance up to him. This is the point of the imprecation. Lord, it is thy glory, it is thy responsibility, it is thy duty, it is thy privilege to be vengeful, it is not for me. It's not for me. It's for God to do it. And that's what Psalm 94 really speaks of in the first few verses. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. Something we try to inculcate into our children and make it very clear. Yeah, okay, they hit you, but you don't hit them back. They took something from you, you don't take something back from them. Because vengeance belongs to God. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself. Now judge of the earth, thou judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud. And so the imprecation, the, the calling upon God to deal with these, your enemies, these wicked, these workers of iniquity, is absolutely in accordance because I've only referenced the New Testament, oh, except Psalm 94 to talk about the vengeance. But, but, but Matthew 5, Romans 12. And so that's what David prays. David leaves the vengeance up to the Lord, at least he does in Psalm 6, as we're understanding it. Let all mine enemies be, asha all mine enemies be ashamed and sore, that means very vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. So David is not taking revenge. He's bringing it to the Lord to do what he sees fit. Will the Lord send his spirit to convict that man or that woman? Will, will he bring his spirit to save that person according to election? 
Will he have all of his sins and crimes and wickednesses which have been done against David put upon Christ upon the cross? That's up to the Lord. The Lord is the righteous judge of all the earth. And so David is not putting on a brave face before God. He's pouring out his anguish, he's pouring out his bitterness, he's pouring out his grief and his disappointment and leaving God to deal with the details of how God will deal with it. But that's not in our human nature. But we must do. We must allow God to be the bringer of vengeance, punishment, even saving grace to do it. Not that we have no responsibility. We have a responsibility to those who have sinned against us to go to speak to them and to rebuke them. We do have those responsibilities. But not to take vengeance. And so in the context of this psalm then, if God can be a strict heavenly father towards his own children, how much more then can he be an angry father against those that would come against his own children? Anyone would come near and harm them. Woe be unto them, therefore, that would touch the apple of his eye. Of his eye. And the title of this, of this um, Bible study is Christ chasteneth those whom he loveth. But when we come to the end, we must say this, Christ destroys those who hate whom he loveth. Christ destroys those who hate whom he loveth. And I mentioned also last week as we were introducing the psalm, there is also a, a great layer here of Christ being revealed in Psalm 6. When we consider the sufferings of Christ and we, throughout his whole life, and we think of the great sufferings before the cross would really point to the Garden of Gethsemane and in Christ's weeping, and he, he, he was weeping and he was uh, and sweating in great fear. And then the trial of this before the Sanhedrin, where there was some abuse, but then he was left to the Romans, soldiers to be beaten and whipped and abused. And then the crucifixion itself. Uh, we see something of this in the cross, because, of course, uh, Christ speaking of that, uh, that, that this word speaks of him, search the scriptures, for they they are that speak of me. And he is to be found, and that's why... Colossians 3 and 16 describes the Psalms as the word of Christ. Christ is seen in different ways, sometimes very obviously describing a part of Christ's ministry or a part of Christ's suffering, but in, in other times, as I've mentioned, is where Christ himself is, 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 is there as the Lord giving the comfort and the help. He's, he is being the Lord unto whom we look looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we see that uh, again and again in the Psalms also, whether it's by David or Asaph or whomever. So we see something of that, of the actual pain and suffering and, and crucifixion. I mean, we see some of that in some of these things here. But also this, especially that Christ is suffering in the place of his people. He is taking their rebuke. He is taking their chastisement. He is taking their punishment upon himself. He is weeping tears of remorse that they should weep, but the sin-cold heart won't. He is weeping for them. He is suffering for them. And yet at the end we see that he's still conquering. He's still the victorious conqueror upon the cross, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating the devil, and hell itself.
And indeed, I would suggest this, that, 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 that the verse 10 also points to Christ conquering all of his earthly enemies. That all of Christ's enemies will return. They will turn back, that means, and be ashamed suddenly. You know, as, a, as an army comes against the army, another army, in, and they, 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 they turn back, they flee. That's essentially what it means, let them return. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. And all because of the conquering Christ. So that's a layer that's, that, that, that is there also to be seen. But it is that point of prayer. The point of prayer. The point of rebuke. But even in the deepest rebuke where you see the hand of the Lord upon you. And you see, well, this is going wrong. That's going wrong. This is not how it should be. He said, the Lord must be behind this. I, I know there's something not good. But even in that condition, that's when we also pray upon the Lord. Pray unto the Lord. And he will answer. He will hear. The Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. And you can take that. You can take those words from the scriptures for yourself and bring them before the Lord. The Lord, if thou answerest David, answer also me. Amen. And may the Lord bless this word uh, to your hearts and souls. Let us close this portion of our meeting in prayer, please. Our Lord and our God, thou hearer of prayer, thou answerer of prayer, and how wise thou art, how long-suffering thou art, and to deal with all these issues so magnificently. Thou art wiser than Solomon. Thou art more glorious. And that we may cast our cares upon thee, thou knowest us inside and out. There can be no confusion of communication, no misunderstanding with God. Thou knowest it all, and even we, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anguish, in the midst of attack, I must confess that we do not know everything from the beginning to the end, but thou dost. And we thank thee, Lord, that that is so. And therefore, when we call upon thee for help, and Lord, that we even call upon thee with prayers of imprecation, that, Lord, thou wilt do all that is right, and thou wilt bring glory to thy name. And so, Lord, help us now also as we come to this time of prayer. Help us also, Lord, to be bold in that right way, having that confidence that thou art the hearer of prayer. Thou hast heard our prayers, and thou shalt answer our petitions, and it will bring great glory to thy name. And so we pray for thy Holy Spirit to help us, that spirit of supplication, to humble us and to give us that boldness. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Hear thou our prayers. Bless thy word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.